From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you the Revolut Revelations Rumble On, AI is a non-starter for 40% of startups, and Grab gobbles 1.4 billion in investment to build a super app. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 303 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? Really good. Fintech never sleeps. Uh, I'm excited for this show. We've got some incredible stories on. uh, And yeah, it's been a tiring day, but we're doing some exciting stuff with some exciting people. So rock and roll. As always. Yeah, we can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are not alone. We are joined by some awesome guests. Um, we have Mel Palmer, CMO of Exo Investing, making her return appearance. How are you today, Mel? I'm very happy, very happy to be back here. It's been a pretty good week with International Women's Week just kicking off in fintech, basically. I've had the best time. Absolutely. Some brilliant events out there. Yeah. Um, we have making his first appearance, Matt Valentine, who is uh, who works at Barclays UK Ventures. How are you today, Matt? Very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, <clears throat> good to come see the 11FS guys in their office. Um, and last but my name is least, we have Ali Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at Fintech Finance. How are you today, Ali? I'm very, very good, Sarah, today. Welcome to the show. Great to have you all with us. So let's get on with this week's news. So the first one uh, this week is the Revolut Revelations Rumble On, and I deserve a prize for saying that. I know. Well, like, that would have tripped me right up. I'm so glad you're hosting. Um, so I'm going to run through like a few things that have happened, and then we'll get into a conversation, because this is not just one story. This is like an amalgamation. This is a proper maelstrom. So there was a blog from Revolut CEO stating that there has been misleading information in the media and that compliance is and always has been a key priority for the company. Um, A key quote from that would be, in July last year, we rolled out a more advanced sanction screening system in parallel with our existing controls. At no point during this time did we fail to meet our legal or regulatory requirements. Then there was another blog on Revolut's culture, the past, the present and the future. Um, So we talked last week, I believe, about the Wired story that came out about Revolut's culture and it being not good. Um, then another blog from the CEO who basically said, I know now that there is much more to running a successful business than simply hitting targets. We now conduct biannual surveys where we ask our employees what we're doing well and where we need to improve. Um, we're currently looking for a head of people and culture. And then he goes on to say, we've grown from 100 to over 800 people. I would have thought having a head of culture before this point might have been useful. Um, and then last, by no means least, was um, a notification that went out from Revolut into its app. So basically, they were looking for Trustpilot reviews from their customers, which after the three stories I've just mentioned, you can understand why they might be on a drive to, to gain reviews from their customers. But the way in which it was phrased was this, help me not get fired. Straight up, we spent hours trying to come up with a clever way to get you to leave us a Trustpilot review. Long story short, we came up with absolutely nothing, so now we need to justify those wasted hours. So could you do us a favor and take out two minutes from your busy day to leave us a review? Seriously, this stuff means the world to our support team, and we'd be really keen to know which features mean the most to you. In the meantime, I'll be brushing up my resume. So, that's that's just this week. Um, race through it there. Who wants snowball. to go first? <laughs> Holy snowball, right? So once, once the, it's like a runaway freight train and it feels like they can't get their arms around it and it feels like they can't help but do more stupid things because the culture's broken. So like I look at this, um, yeah, the City of London police thing, I think that's a, become a matter for, for the regulator and, and I can see why they'd want to um, clear, clear those things up. But the title of the blog post, let me set the record straight. One, it's like, you're all wrong, I'm right, let me prove it to you. Um, and then 
then two, this this blog post about the Revolut's culture, the past, the present, and the future. If you actually go read that, it reads like it's ghostwritten. It, there's no authenticity in it. And I think that's the thing that customers want. And then this thing that is authentic, this notification that comes up, if you're using the Revolut app. Now, imagine you have no idea what Revolut's going through. Imagine you're not in this fintech bubble. You're one of their three or four million customers. And you get this notification that says, help me not get fired. I work at the support team. Like, how must that make you feel about the staff there? I mean... It is the, the term that comes to, to mind every time Revolut do anything is tone deaf Mm -hmm. i think that's it and like you look at some of this stuff and it almost feels corporate like Mm. they've been told you need to say these things Mm -hmm. and i think you know we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago on the show it's really important for fintechs to be transparent to be trustworthy you know we're going up against a traditional industry and that's really what sets us apart and you know the communication the tone really just, just isn't doing that you always say that culture is everything i think that's on your one of your stickers i think well it might be we've got so many stickers we, we have a lot of stickers, um, but I think the the thing that we do often say is culture is everything. I don't know if we have a sticker for it, and I think that's this is a classic example of why. Do you think that, because it used to be, Nikolai used to be the gift that keeps on giving. He would say things at events that very clearly have not gone through PR, and now it seems that, as I said, it's not authentic, it has been PR. Do you think that they should almost embrace who they are and be like yes we are very targets driven because that kind of that kind of is their culture but they have done that repeatedly so like 18 months ago that was very much them and when I was at Business Insider my colleague uh, Oscar did a couple of pieces on them and he he said things I can't remember them word for word but they were very much in the vein of like if you want to go home at five o'clock we don't want you working for us and like I don't believe you can build a company if you don't if you if you have a work-life balance something like if you can't build a startup with a work-life balance so they did do that and that turned me off personally. I was turned off by that like right away. A lot of people weren't. Um, but I think the problem is that they've proven that the bad culture has resulted in systematic flaws. So these problems in their compliance, um, I would suspect have come from the cultural route. Does that make sense? So I think that like if your if your company culture is results driven, then maybe you, you you do end up cutting corners where you really shouldn't be cutting but, but corners. But we saw this with the financial crisis as well, and um, we've seen it with every mis-selling scandal that's ever happened. Is when people have a target, but the culture isn't right, then you get this. This isn't something unique to fintechs. But what really bothers me is this becomes something that you can throw back at fintechs, and the whole industry takes a hit from it. When actually, there's a whole bunch of people trying to do the right thing for customers that looks like this and there's a whole bunch i'm i'm pretty certain of it of great people inside of revolut for whom they don't stand for this who are trying to do the right thing for customers um, and this must be deeply frustrating to them who are trying to build a great product that makes a difference for and let's remember at the middle of this was a great product like people love revolut it was the best travel card and all of that's been forgotten and that's not what people are talking about and that's what people should be talking about i well uh, yes, but I, ideally, I, if well, you're no, them. No, no, yes, and I, I do agree that the product is great. But if the product is non-compliant, then that's a problem. Do you see what I mean? Like you can't if your great if your product is great, but you've done it by being non-compliant, then it's not really a great product because it's not legal. <laughs> do you see what I mean? So to me, that's that that's the whole here. And I've I've, al- I've always 
dislike Revolut's culture, but I always had a certain amount of respect for the product they'd built and the quality it was until these rumblings about compliance started. And they started about 18 months ago, actually, if you looked into kind of where it come from. And I do feel that this is the gift that's going to keep on giving, but I am going to move us on to a, a more positive story, which is the Women in Fin Powerless 2019, which features some of our own. So um, this is a Powerless that comes out annually from Innovate Finance. Um, just in time for International Women's Day, uh, 11FS's own Lida Glyptus and Sophie Thien were both on the list, um, which is fabulous news for us and for them. They are fabulous women. Um, launched in 2015, the Women in Fintech Powerlist has increasingly attracted a global audience. So apparently they had an unprecedented volume of applications and nominations this year from around the world. Um, so this iteration spine, spines a shotlight or shines a spotlight, depending <laughs> on which way you fancy saying that, on 150 women. Apparently, there were 1,200 nominations across seven categories. Um, And those categories are senior leaders, rising stars, technology professionals, investors, policymakers and regulatory experts, marketers and communicators, and financial and professional services. So, I mean, first of all, shout out to the great ladies from 11FS. Shout out to all the other great ladies who are on that list. Every year I look at it and I'm always so pleased on it. I'm like, that's my friend, and that's my friend, (laughs) and that's my friend. Um, But... To, you know, at a, at a, a more serious level, I guess, are, are these lists still important? I'm looking at Mel. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping straight away. Um, I, so, you know, I, I still think they have a role to play. You know, we haven't reached gender equality until we get to that point. I think it's really important to force the issue. And I think that's kind of where lists like this come from. Um, I love that there is a list of incredible ladies that I can find online. I think that's brilliant to have so many incredible role models in one place um, for people who perhaps don't know these people. They're not their friends. They've never heard of them. I think that's really inspiring, especially for the sector. Um, So I'm still of the like, yes, we still need them now. Hopefully we get to the point where we don't. I'm excited by the fact that it's gaining momentum. Like year on year, this list is getting bigger. There are more aspects to the list. Um, And that increasingly you're seeing new faces pop up on there and you're seeing more talent come through. And increasing talent and increasing diversity within the industry is good for the industry. If we get people that can think in different ways um, and offer different ideas, that's going to improve results for everybody. I, I personally couldn't couldn't agree more. I think we had five on the list from Barclays, so just Ooh. just sneaking ahead of, ahead of you guys. Um, so couldn't agree more. Great great uh, chance to show you what what brilliant people are doing. For me, we shouldn't have the list like that. We shouldn't have to have a list that says this gender or that gender is doing fantastic things. It just it should just be a list of these amazing, incredible people are doing doing awesome stuff. So I, I quite often think about my my niece. Who I think she's gonna gonna go on and do great stuff. She should just be on the list. It should just be a list, and she's done this awesome stuff. With that in mind, a leader was baiting me a little bit on Facebook to do this. I'm really tempted to publish a list of the top 25 most influential bald middle-aged white men and have that as a... I, you see, now, what, what I love about this particular power list is that um, a lot of the time you see lists, and in this industry you see a lot of bloody lists, and mm-hmm. a lot of the time it's the same people over and over again, and how, how do you measure who should be on that list? Um, I know the guys at Innovate Finance really well, and it's, it's quite a rigorous process. You, you mean, not only do you have to have achieved something, but... You genuinely have to have done something standing on your own two feet and really, you know, stand for something and have supporting evidence for that. Whatever, whatever that is, it doesn't have to be like, I built a thing. It could be like, I just had a great idea or I communicate in a very effective way. A lot of the lists I see online are people who just like repeat other people's stuff over and over louder. Yeah, and I'm like, now I'm bored of you. The, the, the ranking of most influential thing, like yeah. it's great clickbait, but is it actually useful? Whereas I think a list that's not presented as a ranking, but is here's, 
here's a bunch of people that are talented is actually super helpful. One, because it does well in SEO. So if I'm looking for talent or I'm looking for information or uh, if producer Laura is looking for people to get on the show that are fresh voices, that's actually genuinely helpful. Uh, but if it's like this is the ranking of the most influential because and it's the same names that it was for the last 10 years, then who's that helping? I also love the fact that this has the different categories. So like rising stars and senior leaders. And on the senior leaders, you would expect to see Anne Bowden every year until she steps down from Starling, which will probably be when she dies because she, you know, is, is, mm. is so good at that and she loves it and that that's her baby. I once asked her when she was going to take a holiday and she just sort of mumbled at me and went, no, never. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like policymakers and regulatory experts. So if you're talking about power list, you may never have heard of these women. Mm-hmm. You may never have met them and they may never be on a podcast or write an article or be vocal on Twitter. But my goodness, are they making a difference in the background? I love that. I love the fact that some of these women are, are in the background. You know, um, they might be an engineer at Monzo or a head of compliance at, at you know, another startup. And yeah, okay, they don't have a big vocal presence. They don't have to, but yes, they're the ones driving the industry. And, and some of the stories are powerful. So not, not this, but I was at the Every Woman Awards yesterday. Uh, on my table was a, a young lady who had set up coding for kids in India where it's hard to even get electricity. Uh, two years, 78,000 kids had been through her coding courses. Wow. <laughs> um, she's a first-year student at Durham. Wow. It sounds like that's in perspective. I know. So that is amazing. Sh- that puts it in perspective. But my goodness, do I feel like I haven't achieved it. <laughs> I feel massively inadequate now. Try to see next one. That, that's impact, isn't it? I think that impact and, and result thing is huge. So, um, I mean, all in all, we are approving of this. We are approving of the fabulous ladies on it. And well done to everybody. Um, next story today is Bank of Ireland's multi-billion euro tech bill. So this is a story from the Times um, that the Bank of Ireland bosses fight to rein in tech bill. So I'm going to get some of these numbers are ridiculous. So bear with me. The budget for the IT project, which aims to replace all of the bank's legacy systems in an effort by Bank of Ireland to leapfrog to the forefront of digital. <laughs> Sorry, I can't. <clears throat> to leapfrog to the forefront of digital banking was increased from 900 million euro to 1.4 billion euro in the summer of 2018, including an extra 250 million euro allocated for business restructuring. And I'm putting that in air quotes. Um, a final cost as high as €2 billion Euro is being mentioned at senior levels in the bank, according to sources. Um, and the investment is supposed to reduce the Bank of Ireland's cost-income ratio to 50% by 2021. Um, however, this key efficiency measure stalled at 65% last year. So basically, what they're worried about, as far as I can tell, is scope creep. And that in and of itself is incredibly expensive. So I think the the, the, the point being, so apparently the sources close to this project said that there are growing concerns about like it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the plan keeps changing. And the plan keeps changing as they're trying to keep a lid on costs. But in my experience, if you keep changing the plan, it gets more expensive, not cheaper. Yeah. Unless anybody else has had a different experience this, of that. This to me feels like mad commitment to do the right thing the wrong way. Um, so Francesca Madonna, the CEO, said, we start from a position of historical underinvestment and poor customer experience, which is an interesting statement. Um, our legacy systems and process just have to fundamentally change. I fully agree with that. Um, core banking will remain a key deliverable fully agree with that. It's absolutely the right thing to do. I agree with that. The last sentence I struggle with a bit more, he says, and it's progressing well. Don't know about that much. But actually, like the the number here is massive. 1.4 billion euros, 2 billion euros. Do you have to spend that much to build a bank? Well, if you go listen to episode 299 of 
Fintech Insider, we had Tom Blomfeld and we asked him that question because I think Santander had announced 750 million to go do a thing with uh, IBM and they were going to do a lot of work with them. And we're like, Tom, how much did it cost to do Monzo? Because like, they're making waves. Now, granted, they don't do everything the universal banks do. It's not apples to apples. But so far, they've burned about 100 million and they've got 1.5 million customers on a platform that is probably going to set them up for the next decade or a couple of decades. That's a lot cheaper than 2 billion. And I think it comes down to the big bang migration. Like we've got to take all of the processes that we had. We've got to take all of the data that we had, all of the products that we had. And somehow we've got to take them from where they are and put them into this new thing from a vendor. And that seems to be the only game in town. And it seems to keep like, how many times can you get to the definition of insanity? Like they keep doing the same thing. They keep spending this amount of money. Like there was TSB, there was uh, Nordera going through a similar thing, I believe. Um, we've seen countless examples of this. But how do you, sorry, no, Mel, no, you go first. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say like, it's all in, I guess, the execution. You know, these are the right ideas, as you say. I still think there'll be more people who try and do it. There will we probably do have a t-shirt that says execution is everything. <laughs> so, so there is that, but I also think the point, yes, execution is everything. They've obviously messed up in the execution. How do you be that person who's like, stop, scratch it. We've got to write off that 2 million and start again because this is going wrong. I've, got, you... a really, I've got a really good business case. I can save you 600 million euros right now. Stop. Yeah, fine. But then what about the person who implemented in the first place? And what about the person who signed on the extension of the budget? And what about the person who like called in the scope creep? Like, or do those people lose their jobs because you said stop? Like, how do you convince them? How do you like convince I think people? 600 million would pay for a lot of um, training and education and life change. And re, you know, like you could do all sorts with that. You go back to the quote, Simon. So you said you agree with all of it, but the, but the last line. So the issue of just, just stop that is you've still got your legacy. You've still got the processes. You've still got the things that doesn't, doesn't work. Um, for me, the bit is just focus on the customer. Like you didn't, we didn't use the word customer through any of this. If you focus on what's right for the customer and build backwards from there, then you're going to get to the right answer. And I think that's hard to do when there's lots of things going on. Just be relentless about the customer. Yeah, and, and she says, you know, um, we start from position of historical investment and poor customer experience. So they're kind of aware of it. But what I think what you're saying is that instead of starting with the customer working backwards, they're looking at the customer. They do know that's important, but somehow out. they've gone over there. They've gone like, you know, 180 degrees in the opposite direction yeah. and forgotten it. And, you, and you've got to think about the customer at all points. If you work in back office, you work in technology, it's still critical that you're thinking about the customer all of the time. And I think it's, it's, that's where the, the gap comes and people don't think I about think it all the time. I think the gap between like that everyday life of working in a bank and that life um, of a customer is, is significant. And starting at the proposition, I mean, if you look at the Monzo playbook, Right. The thing of starting with a prepaid card, I remember if you wind the clock back three years, everybody poo-pooed starting with a prepaid card because actually, oh, well, it's just Monzo. a prepaid card. Yeah, it's just a prepaid card. We can do that. But Moniz did it, I think, as well. And and uh, I think even Revolut was a prepaid card. Revolut's still a prepaid card and yeah. will be until they get their license sorted. So this is a model whereby if you get the customer proposition right, it almost doesn't matter what's going on underneath. You can build a great business on a customer proposition and then work your way to the infrastructure over many years afterwards. And that dual pronged approach really allows you to sort that customer interface out first and then gives you a lot more time to not have to do the big bang migration. But I do think there's something to be said for if I take all of my paper-based branch processes and try to do them with the latest technology, I'm not going to end up with something that's truly digital. I'm to end up with all of those processes and all of that cost because it was the processes that were the issue. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, we're not going to see the end of these stories where, you know, as we can all sit around here and go, this is a stupid idea and like they should just call to end to it. But as Matt says, you know, it, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. Um, right. So can I, can I bring one little thing in on the Bank of Ireland thing? Yep. Um, I was very fortunate enough to be involved in a bunch of uh, video production for actually the pitch for the core platform that they've implemented. And the thing that really struck me, this is back in 2015, is there was a real sense of this needs to be done now. This needs to be done ASAP. Because it's very easy to say stop now, but if they hadn't even started it, they might be in a much, much worse position. But it's not done. And you could have started at the customer proposition side, built the abstractions, and then thought about this. Rather than starting at do everything now, start with the proposition now, and then buy time for the rest. That's, that's I think, the fundamental mindset shift that's missing in all of these conversations. We can only hope they learn, is all yeah. I can say from that, really. I, I completely understand what you're saying, Ali, but um, we can only hope they learn from, from their mistakes and other people learn from, from others' mistakes. Right. AI is a non-starter for 40% of startups. This is another tongue twister. Thanks for that. Um, This is from Forbes. Nearly half of all startups... No. Sorry. Leave that in, because this is what it actually says. Nearly half of all AI startups have no AI. Um, So 40% of European firms who are classified as an AI startup don't exploit the field of study in any material way for their business. Out of 2,830 startups in Europe who were classified as being AI companies, only 1,580 accurately fit that description according to MMC, which is a London-based venture capital firm. Um, Startups who are labelled as being in the field of AI attract 15 to 50% more in their funding rounds. (laughs) There's a huge difference between 15 and 50%. Hello. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, we will get onto that, but just to give you some numbers, the number of startups who do use AI as part of their products or services has grown to 1 in 12 today, up from 1 in 50 about six years ago. So there is some progress. 12% of large companies are using AI applications in their business, up from just 4% in the past year. Um, The most popular cases, uh, sorry, uses of AI were chatbots followed by process automation tools, which is where AI should be. Anyway, um, Matt, I believe you had some involvement in this. Would you like to give us your take? We did. So we had the the pleasure of producing this report in association with MMC. Um, So we got to know David Kelnar, who who wrote it really, really well through this. Um, And kind of as you're pointing out, AI slapped on everything. It's like you go, how many many meetings am I going to go into? Yeah, AI and everything. Um, um, uh, some of my takeaways from from hearing about it is it's it's actually way more pervasive than people realise in everyday life. Uh, it's already helping on so many things that that we, that we do. Taking it outside of, of fintech, the, the changes that are coming in healthcare are just phenomenal. It's it's incredible to think what's going to change when you go into an operating theatre in the future, and what's that what's that going to mean to mean to our life? Can I ask how AI was defined? So AI, I think, has lots of different meanings lots of different people and some of it to me is ai but it's also just an an automated if statement and some of it is a lot cleverer and i just wonder for this particular report what definition was taken Uh, so you put you put me on the spot you'll have to read the report to get the the, the definitions that's that's in there yeah yeah (laughs) so that is such a key point sarah to me though that ai is a marketing term machine learning is interesting and deep learning is 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 an area of genuine innovation and and the amount of people that are actually doing deep learning or that need to 
use deep learning is very small compared to the amount of people who just need to get their data strategy right and to get the basics right. But nobody wants to be told that. It's kind of like uh, if you ever go see um, a physiotherapist, they always tell you to do something really gentle and slow to get the movement right. But, and the people go in, wanna, they want to lift big things or they want to run a marathon. And it's like, maybe you should look after the, the, the smaller things first and get the basics right. Nobody ever wants to hear that. Nobody ever wants to hear that you've got to get your diet right. They just want the results immediately. And you see that in how AI sold. You see um, coming to you soon, AI, you see it in airports and you see it all over the place. But I think the startups aren't the worst culprit here. Like how many big tech vendors, how many big organizations, generally big consultancies are selling AI as if it's magic beans? Like unless you've got a data strategy in place, unless I can access my data, unless I can get access to big data sets, then all the deep learning in the world means nothing if I can't get my hands on that data. So like, th I think this raises a really interesting point because of that problem. I was going to say, Mel, you, you work in um, an area that has been particularly susceptible, I think, to sort of AI blindness, certainly a lot of the press releases. I was just saying the number of press releases I get every week, which is just like AI powered. And I'm like bored now. In fact, that actually makes me delete them. So anybody who's listening, think of a new way to just title your yeah. emails. I mean, we, we have used AI powered and we have scrapped it now. But, you know, it was one of those things where um, obviously I'm in marketing and I came in and I was like, oh, we actually, we actually have artificial intelligence. Like I can't give you the, you know, deepest, darkest secrets of it because I don't understand it, but we definitely do it. We definitely do machine learning. We have something very valuable there. Um, and we were slapping kind of AI on everything. It's like, well, that's what everybody wants to hear. And the definition, as you say, the definition of AI is so loosely used. I mean, honestly, you don't know where it's real and where it's not. So as a term, it's kind of lost any value in general anywhere, probably because of people like me and marketers who've, who've overused it. I know. No, I've ruined the industry. Um, but it is, you know, it's really tricky and it's it's difficult for customers to be able to kind of discern what's what's real and what's not. Um, and I think actually even not even using the term, you can present an air of being extremely tech and extremely capable without actually having anything going on your back end. That's, that's the beauty of digital uh, propositions. And also, on the other hand, if you're a, a, a customer of those types of solutions, if you happen to be aging um, and feeling disconnected and threatened by technology, but you need to sound relevant, it's one of those buzzwords that you can throw around that makes you feel a bit better. Uh, and also, it's the sort of thing that sounds a bit science fiction-y. And I think because it has that about it, people get it has a cool factor. Um, and yet... It's such a shame because some of the things that deep learning can do is incredible. It can recognize faces better than humans. Like this stuff is unbelievable, but also really, really dangerous if used in the wrong hands. And, it, and all of those headlines get mixed with press release about something that isn't actually AI and the wrong startup can get easily funded or the wrong tech solution can be bought. So I also think that people, exactly to Matt's point, forget that AI has actually been being used for a very, very long time. And I think some of the companies who do use what we would, you know, some of the more interesting forms of AI or more complex forms of AI are probably very fed up by this. Um, just to go to that point, um, from the report, these startups were not necessarily promoting themselves as being AI firms, apparently. Um, a lot of them were just labeled this way by third-party analytics websites. And I imagine journalists um, having been in mm. that world, and I'm not attacking you in any way, Ali, I just generally as a field, I think that journalists have a tendency to go, oh, AI, okay, we'll just put that. Because for the same reason the marketeers do it, people will read it. 
It's not another, uh, what's it, Long Island iced tea AI kind of scenario. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, a really interesting report and really interesting to see from my perspective what marketing can do on a positive but also on a damaging note to an industry and actually kind of knock, people, knock people's interest away. So um, we, I'm going to keep an eye out now and see how many more people send me press releases with AI if anybody's listening to this. And if they, you know, if they, <laughs> if, if they do send them to me, I'm going to send this podcast back. Um, there, there we, are, sorry to could have crushed you Sarah but there are some areas where chatbots have started to get interesting but it's not in um, how it communicates with the customer it's what it does as an interface and and so like I look at things like Plum and Habito as being uh, really interesting companies that have started a different type of engagement with a customer yes they're using some automation there but actually that's a proposition that's really been thought about it's not tech led it's proposition led uh, and again when you get into some of the stuff around risk management or robotic process automation like I'm generally a fan of rethinking a paper based process but you can to the the story with bank of ireland earlier actually there's probably a lot to be said for robotic process automation as a stopgap for some of your digital front ends to get you to the point where you can then start to do uh, really interesting things with the core years later to reduce your cost income ratio and to do clever things like that yeah no i'm a huge fan of rpa um but we're going to take a quick break we'll be back very shortly I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you can't get enough of us and you want to see us as well as hear us, we have brought back Fintech Insider on air. Every Wednesday from 3pm, we'll be live on Periscope chatting about the latest topics and trends in this industry. So keep your eyes on the 11FS Twitter for more news on that. And now on with the show. So this is the most clickbaity headline of the week. Facebook's crypto coin, like that could have been generated by an AI. Um, the story, uh, we took the story from The Independent. Apparently, Facebook is working on a cryptocurrency for WhatsApp to rival Bitcoin. So Facebook is working on a coin that users of WhatsApp, which Facebook owns, could send to friends and family instantly. The Facebook project is far enough along that the social networking giant has held conversations with cryptocurrency exchanges about selling the Facebook coin to consumers. Um, Facebook has more than 50 engineers working on the project. 
Um, apparently they're not the only ones. Telegram and Signal are planning to roll out new cryptocurrencies over the next year that are meant to allow users to send money to contacts on their messaging systems. So Simon, um, I believe we talked about this on Blockchain Insider, which you can give a little plug to in a minute. I'll, I'll be generous. Um, but do you want to give us a quick overview of what your thoughts are on this one? Yeah, so Facebook have a couple of, uh, like an e-money license and a few things going on uh, to, to maybe get regulated and maybe start doing things in payments. Uh, of course, the guy who's leading this initiative, David Marcus did used to run Messenger and before that was the CEO of PayPal. So they've got a serious payments heavyweight in there looking at this. This isn't something that they're, they're half doing. And I think they've got more than, uh, it was reported somewhere else, more than 50 engineers looking at it. Now, the really interesting question is why? I said that. I said that, but they had more, more than 50 engineers working on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you did. My bad. Well, there you go. It shows how much I listen. Um, so the point here, though, is why are they doing this, right? So to me, it's it's trying to compete with your WeChats, your Alipay, your super apps that are out there that are that where chat has become the interface to do so much more from food delivery to buying your groceries to everything in between day to day life. And how do you do that? Well, if you're in China, it's really easy because you've got a government there that's supportive of you doing it, if they can uh, get their hands on the data, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if you're Facebook, you're in hundreds of countries and you, it's a lot harder to get regulated in all of them. Turns out a whole bunch of people were using things uh, like, uh, so there's some work by the Gates Foundation that a whole bunch of people are using WhatsApp to do this sort of thing anyway, to sort of send each other crypto and to sort of send each other airtime. So this is just trying to give them a set of tools in a way in which the crypto exchanges are already out there. Why don't we just give them a tool set to be able to do this? But I don't think it's designed to compete with Bitcoin. Um, this is just a thing that like, if I'm in an emerging market and I need to pay somebody at distance, here's a way I can take my airtime and get it across the border to somebody else. Really interesting set, set of questions about how you're going to make this compliant. Um, but yeah, we talked about this for about 10 minutes on Blockchain Insider, uh, episode 87 called uh, Forked Off, uh, which is available on iTunes now. Perfect. So if you want more on that story, go and find Blockchain Insider. So should um, I buy a Facebook coin? Uh, I don't know if you can, but they are apparently planning to list them. Uh, so the next story is another tongue twister. Grab gobbles 1.4 billion in investment to build a super app. Um, so we took the story from Finextra. Um, Grab Holdings is Southeast Asia's leading super app. Apparently they're already a super app, but this is from their press release. They call themselves that. Um, but they have secured 1.46 billion of fresh funding from the SoftBank Vision Fund. So both Asia and SoftBank means explains that number instantly. Um, it brings the total financing secured in Grab's current Series H round, good grief, to over 4.5 billion dollars. Um, other investors in this round include uh, Toyota Motor Corporation, Oppenheim, Oppenheimer Funds, Hyundai, Booking Holdings, Microsoft, Pingang, Yamaha, any, anybody else you care to mention, really. Um, Grab intends to use the funds to advance its super app vision in Southeast Asia with the aim of bringing more money. More money? Now, there's a Freudian slip. With the aim of bringing more everyday services, great accessibility and convenience to users. Um, so basically, they started off as like, I believe, like transport and then they moved into financial services, um, which is kind of forming like the core of their network at this point. But they also want to do, uh, well, they already do, sorry, food delivery, parcel delivery, content, um, digital, you know, financial services. And um, they've got many, many more services in the pipeline, I'm sure. Um, also geographic expansion planned out in Indonesia. Um, so we spoke to Ruben Lai, who's the Senior Managing Director of Grab Financial Group in episode 290. So go and listen uh, to that if you want to find out more about this financial 
services arm specifically. Um, but what what do we think of this? I mean, this is not the first rise of the super app, but my goodness, it's to me slightly intimidating. Actually, I don't know if anybody else Terrifying. feels about this. You know, you think about um, we look at I guess very biased obviously in fintech but you look at growths of companies and you look at funding rounds and now everything kind of pales in comparison um and to be able to move into another vertical and be so successful you know you could if you can replicate that kind of approach to a new vertical and you've got that money behind you i, I don't really know what's going to stop you and i don't know who's going to come up behind you either Super interesting um, position given that uh, out of China, you've seen Alipay and WeChat um, really uh, sort of do good, do pretty good job of following their consumers out of China, um, but they're increasingly trying to grow a regional presence. Uh, whereas you've got the likes of Grab and Gojek, um, who, you know, the, the two is pretty much a two horse race um, for outside of China uh, in Southeast Asia, especially, um, where there's just this absolute battleground for what's going to be the super app. That's a term that doesn't exist in the West, but it's super normal now. And increasingly, uh, that's uh, there's so much that we can learn in the West by looking at things like that and being inspired for what are the propositions going to be in the future. Uh, and I think this has the opportunity to give Alipay a real run for its money. And no wonder they need that amount of funding. Consider the juggernauts they're up against and the scale of those juggernauts, um, but also um, the different markets they're playing in. The context here of Malaysia is very different to the Philippines, which is very different to Thailand, which is extremely different to Singapore, which so that all of these markets are so different versus China, where you kind of have this ability for the Chinese government to kind of say, it shall be this way. And then everybody has to sort of appear with it. It's very uh, Chinese approach. So I am just absolutely uh, blown away by the innovation you see coming from that side of the world and learn lessons every day. I super enjoyed doing that interview with Grab. Like, go listen to 290. It was a great show. I think for me, the the idea that they're doing this over that many different markets, as you said, is very interesting. But I also I think that Grab have the right strategy. And so far as I understand it, they go local. And then so rather than taking something and trying to like dump it somewhere else. So when Alipay have moved outside of China, as, as um, Simon said, they follow their Chinese customers. Grab is looking for new customers. So like Alipay is trying to serve the, the the Chinese middle and wealthy classes that go to Germany and buy expensive handbags. And it's slightly bonkers, by the way. I was in um, Australia over Christmas and the queues of Chinese tourists outside the, the shops on Boxing Day sales, like they go there deliberately on holiday to buy things, things that they can't get at home, um, things that are much more expensive in China. But the reason Alipay allows people to have expanded into countries like that is so that the Chinese tourists can spend money in ways in which they're comfortable with. Whereas to me, Grab is going, actually, we don't want to serve our existing customers better. We want to find some new customers. And to, to me, that's almost more terrifying because I don't, I don't believe that Alipay or WeChat, and I may be proved, oh, sorry, Tencent may be proved very wrong here. I don't believe they're going to come to the West and have the same success here with what they've done in China because what they did in China was provide services that people didn't have in one place. We already have those services and we could put them in one place if we want. So that model isn't necessarily going to work here. To come here, they'd have to think of something new. Now, Grab is clearly thinking of new things, which is more scary. I, I completely agree with you. I think the, that focus on how they're tailoring it and how they're tweaking it, that's the bit I find fascinating. Um, so ignore, ignore the SoftBank thing, which is 100 million as their seed fund, investing in the winners is just nuts and crazy. Um, what I try and think about, what I try and think about is what is it that's really working? How are they able to tweak? What are they doing internally? How are they thinking about the customers? How are they then landing and executing it? It's fascinating. And yes, there's differences in the market and the velocity of like growth in, in internet access, et cetera, et cetera. 
culture. The bit I want to learn about is how are they thinking this through? And they, um, so Ruben on episode 290 talks about they have a real uh, financial inclusion Monday and they see their role in the world as being driving financial inclusion. Uh, you think about, um, you know, there, there are unfortunately Uber drivers in the West that do need real-time access to funds just because of the way in which um, that job has, has uh, really helped some vulnerable people, but also maybe push, you know, there is an argument that says it, it pushes vulnerable people into more uh, vulnerable requirements to, you know, take uh, ever lower wages. Um, they've actually come out and made public statements and transparency missions about not being that. Um, but the really interesting thing that they said was this, we're going to put financial services at the middle of everything we do. Yes, people see us as ride hailing, but actually we see our future as being finances at the center of the super app. That really stood out to me as like, so what does that mean for, you know, what are we going to learn from that? What are they going to do with that stuff? Um, given they've got 135 million users, 2 million drivers, like imagine what you could do with that across a number of markets. So um, we are going to keep an eye on that one because we want to see how they spend that money, really, basically, as we're saying. Um, we're going to move on to another big another big funding round, which kind of pales slightly in comparison, but I'm not going to put them down because I love these guys. They are second to Marcus in my heart. Mm-hmm. And people who are regular listeners will we know what that means. We need ranking of like... <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is Chime. Um, they have um, round out an epic new fundraising round. So um, we took a story from Forbes. Uh, Chime have raised $200 million at a $1.5 billion valuation. So this is a Series D financing round led by DST Global, who are no strangers to investing in challenge banks. New investors, uh, Jamal Atlantic, Iconic Capital, and Dragoneer, which is a brilliant name, investment group. Um, they say that the money will go to boost growth and and launch more financial products. Um, March marks a significant milestone for the company. It was able to surpass 3 million bank accounts and claims to be the fastest growing US challenger bank, a claim that I don't think anybody could deny. Um, the article goes on to say a big challenge to China is expected to come from the likes of PayPal and Amazon, um, which is possibly true. Um, but the so let me explain why I love Chime and then we can get into this. <laughs> okay, um, tell us why you love them. Let me give you my backstory. So um, Chime um, are one of the challenger brands in the US and um, they're not the first by any means. You've had Simple for quite a while. But Chime came in with the same kind of attitude we talked discussed earlier as Monzo, that kind of organic growth, that recommending to friends. Very similar idea to Simple. We're not going to charge you fees. We're going to be transparent. We're going to do nice things that the Americans don't have because they are impoverished when it comes to payment services like instant payments to other people and mailing a check and actually getting paid on the day that the money leaves your employer's office. It could be in your account the same day, which apparently is not a thing that they have in America commonly. So all these features to me are fantastic. Um, the growth they've had reflects that. So the, the speed at which they attracted customers. And we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago that they got 10,000 new customers in one day when Wells Fargo fell over. Um, and the the, the 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 services they provide and the honesty of them um, is is just brilliant. And in terms of new products, well, they've already started moving in this direction. They acquired um, Pinch, which is like a credit scoring company. So clearly, they're going to be moving into clearly. I believe <laughs> they're going to be moving into to loans or credit scoring. And that follows down that path of we're a financial services company, but better. And we might give you a loan, but because we've acquired a company that tries to give you an honest and fair credit score, then any loan we give you is going to be suitable for your needs, much in the same way that Monzo have done their overdrafts, unlike PayPal and Amazon, who are squarely criticized repeatedly for offering loans to people who don't, who can't afford them, can't pay them back, or, you know, tying them into contracts. So I think Chime to me is like the first of the American challenger banks who's really got that tone of voice, that culture, that attitude, right? And I think that's reflected in their customer numbers. 
End of spiel. <laughs> what a crazy idea, being transparent and being likable and being genuine and authentic and being able to follow that through, not only in your comms, but your business practices and your culture wins customers. And I think this is the big marketing trend. Uh, and again, I've said it a couple of times, but I really believe everything from the vegan sausage roll to the Nike Colin Kaepernick adverts all the way through is really about you have to be authentic all the way through your organization. And I would argue that maybe Nike hasn't quite got there yet, um, but, it, but it's a signal of intent and it's a signal of where things are really going um i don't buy that the so everybody always talks about oh well what happens when the tech giants come like if you were to ask the ceo or in fact i think the ceo of blockbuster was on record saying he was really worried about microsoft at one point and actually no it's not microsoft you need to worry about it's this little company you've never heard of called netflix and the disruption very rarely comes from the place you think it's going to come from if i'm a big bank in uh the us i'm looking at chime a lot more than i'm looking at amazon it's just amazon people know what that is and so they can anchor to it um and I think there's something that, there's a, again, talking about starting at the customer, as we were talking about earlier, I love this uh, statement. Um, I don't know who originally came out with it, which is, if you don't have 100 customers that absolutely love your product, you don't have a product. And if you start at that, those 100 customers will go get you the next 1,000, who will go get you the 10,000. And that's just something that, you know, people are always trying to think about scale and business case and, you know, what should the UX be and what should the journey be? It's like, Talk to customers and keep iterating till they till they love it. I think that's the key. And get your customers to do the sales for you. I mean, I know you work in marketing well, but like if your customers are re- if each of your customers is recommending it to five of their friends, three of them take them up on it, and it doesn't, you know, you're not doing referral bonuses, doesn't cost you anything. Why the hell wouldn't that be kind of like? the core of your exactly. customer acquisition plan like, and that's how so many fintechs have grown and obviously i totally agree that it's due to having amazing product and being really honest with people um i think chime have a really amazing opportunity to kind of close some of the ecosystem between debt and savings and then you know going into investing and going down that journey um and that's what i would love to see in the uk but given how much they can grow they might actually be the first people to be able to close that ecosystem that uh, end-to-end journey that my end-to-end like financial life uh, you haven't really seen anybody play there and I think it's a super exciting place I mean uh, we interviewed Tom Bonfold I think oh god December 2017 and I asked him the question once you know what do you regret what what have you learned uh, and the one thing he said is I wish I got into savings and lending earlier I wish and, and not just not for the business case but because I can do more for people if I'm able to do that and I think that increasingly as we move away from products which is like I'm going to sell you a current account I'm going to sell you and we move into services which is what do you need and let me figure out if that's savings or lend and maybe it's for you it's micro savings because you hadn't got a savings pot yet but for somebody else they're ready for investments now that sort of service thing and then into end-to-end journeys that's going to be i think increasingly the progression that we're seeing here so I, I completely agree with all these points. And I think um, a, a big theme for me that I think about a lot is end to end. We don't think transactional in our life, but everything previously has been built around you need a product or you need a transaction and everything stems from there. As you start thinking more end to end, more joined up, that's where the opportunities come. So I, I continually think, how do we change from like a just a holistic not transactional. Think about the whole space. That's where the opportunities come. And that, that gap debt to, to savings, there's huge opportunities there. And I think for me, um, when you look at what the challenger brands are in the US, there is obviously Simple, there is Chime. And then you look at the likes of Chase and, and Wells Fargo that are trying to compete in that space with Thin and Greenhouse. And to be honest with you, there's not much to them. Um, if you want to, you know, you should, you should check out our Pulse platform. If you don't have a subscription, like get in touch because... It shows you all these journeys and it compares them sort of like for like. And the big banks are trying to do it, 
with new brands and they're trying to do and you know thin has got emojis in it great wonderful i don't need emojis i need something that is the center of my financial life i need something that provides me an end-to-end kind of like financial management system and that includes giving me you know credit when i need credit and stopping me going into debt and providing with alerts all those things so um i i love the one of the use cases that uh, i was so i was with a client earlier and they were saying oh we actually use pulse uh, and I don't want this to sound like an advertorial, like, but this is genuine. Like this actually happened um, to show people the difference between how we built it and what we meant, because people don't have accounts with either. So there are lots of people who work at a bank who don't have the product that they are in responsible for selling to the customer. Oh my god! And then secondly, um, they've never seen the Challenger Bank's version of it. So they show somebody both of them, and then you can see the delta. It's like there's a difference between saying "tick, I have done that thing" versus "I have done that thing well." Like putting a Google Maps into where a transaction is, if I can never find the Google Maps thing and it's not contextual to why I might need that, well, you might as well not do it. The fact that I've done it tick is not the same as doing it well. And I think that often gets missed. Execution is everything. Um, so should we go back to core banking? Should yeah, we another bash at core banking? Uh, so Nationwide apparently wants in on core banking. Um, we got this story from Finextra. Um, but they nationwide have invested 15 million pounds in 10x future technologies. So 10x future technologies are founded by former Barclays boss Anthony Jenkins. Um, the 15 million pound investment is part of um, a broader Series B funding for 10x. Um, so interesting. Um, nationwide wants to use the 10x cloud native platform as a springboard into the business banking market. Um, they say they want to offer an array of modern mobile and online services aligned with its branch-based physical network. Um, Nationwide has 15 million members, up to a million of whom are business owners. Um, it's also bidding for 50 million in funding from the second round of the, the Banking Remedies uh, Board. So anybody else joining the dots here? Um, interestingly, so 10X is an interesting choice from my perspective. We talked about it last time on the show, last time we mentioned it, I think, was when um, Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank acquired Virgin Money and then pulled the plug on 10X doing the new platform, that the replatforming there. Um, and then what happened in my mind, or the, the, the story that I followed, was that 10X went to the UAE because they signed this agreement with the Dubai regulatory authorities to create a new regulatory framework which would allow them to sell. That They actually said this to allow them to, to operate their innovative technologies in the Middle East. So I thought 10X had like gone. I thought they were like, okay, well, the UK market is quite crowded, particularly in this space. We're going to go and do something somewhere else. And then to see them reappear with Nationwide, it's, it's a very strange sort of journey to me but maybe I've missed something I mean so this one's a bit interesting because my brother is on this project oh sorry yeah, no no and it's funny because like, I was gossip. no exactly and I was like messaging him I was like have you told me anything I'm not supposed to say and the answer is no so it's fine um, give Mel another drink and see what happens yeah I know exactly um, you know obviously you look at it and you go they're going to go after this money as a bank why wouldn't you the opportunity is there um, I think the CEO did an interview on Sky News today um, nationwide nationwide yep. yeah talking about um, whether they should be getting some of the public money to go to a business that actually already has money and they were kind of like well the opportunity is there so we're going to build it anyway and that's kind of where that's come from is there mm. is a business banking opportunity um and they'll take it or leave it and keep going with it anyway so yeah why not i mean i think in, in terms of the remedies fund i think that um as you say we, I, my problem with the remedies fund which is slightly off topic is that it's been quite opaque I'm, I'm still not quite sure what the criteria are for most people who gets awarded what and how that's decided um but if the big banks are eligible for those criteria, whatever they are, then why wouldn't they? You're absolutely right. 
I love this point about Nationwide says it's been working with 10X since last summer to test its thinking around the account and to scope requirements for delivery. So from what, that's nine months? Mm-hmm. It's a good chunk of time, right? To end up with nine months, but then that's a lot of money. Is yeah. the, kind of 15 gonna, million feels like a lot. I mean, I don't know. We've got p- people who are more versed in like um, in, in investment than me, but that feels like a lot of money for a first stab at something. <laughs> but again, like I, I, I'm actually not against the the start at the core out and from the bottom up. Like there is sometimes a, a real rationale for for why you do that. But again, like the proposition, the customer again is is not in this story. And what was interesting about my observation of the remedies fund is one yes they went clearly for challenges but the challenges that they went for are also ones that you can make a real rationale for why they are customer focused tide had not had um sort of they weren't a bank but they partnered with ClearBank. but actually a lot of you've used tide i think um there's a lot of people that would say their proposition is is quite leading in terms of what it does uh, again starling they were one of the first to do some really interesting things in the big bank uh, in the banking space and metro whilst very very different in terms of they have a branch network from the other challenges they are known for customer service they were always near the top in that space so being customer first i think people got the wrong message from the remedies um kind of thing of like oh it has to be shiny new tech not it has to be customer focused and tech is a way to enable that yeah i mean you know the 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 two interesting points there. I mean, the the remedies is one, but I think this um, this uh, growth of new core banking providers is something we're going to be seeing an awful lot more of. In, um, the thing that it reminded me of is the in, is it in reaction to Lloyd's investing in Thought Machine, which is a story we covered oh, earlier in the year. And I, I I don't I mean actually it might well be that Nationwide looked at Lloyd's and went, oh now there's an idea, like not in reaction to, but kind of a a kind of there's nothing wrong with being a fast follower sometimes. Well, Nationwide was one of the very few that did a big bang migration a couple of, when was it, 2013? And it actually kind of worked. Did it? I didn't yeah, know about this. Yeah, no, oh, wow. yeah, you was... never hear about the successes, which is a shame because that should be a case study. Yeah, I mean, was, I think it was SAP, but don't quote me on that. But it seems that this is more of a, for the business banking side of things, it's more of a speedboat. So they'd build, they'll build something separately that is connected. Yeah. Yeah. And then build the business bank off the back of that, which is quite a smart way of doing it. So I, I really like this idea of, of avoiding big bang migrations. And we've seen quite a lot of people actually in France, banks, people, banks in France do this, um, set up something separate on a separate technology over here, sort of to the side and, and see what it does. And in France, they've tended to use like challenger retail brands but on new technology to sort of try things out and test it. Obviously, there's then still a problem of, of transferring customers from one to the other. But it is a way of like, instead of doing what Bank of Ireland did and trying to take it all out and start again, <laughs> at least you've kind of got something else growing organically and then you can make a decision. Well, what does that just like de-risk RBS. it? It's a bit like RBS and metal as kind of a speedboat. <laughs> Thank you, sir. But, but, but I fundamentally believe in that approach, right? It's not just that one. You can point to many other examples, right? Where that allows you to get the customer piece of it right first and also build the abstractions to put something else underneath it later. But you've got to do that in the right way. Like if I go and build a customer proposition and I weld it to something in the back end and I build it the wrong way, then I could end up with another legacy that I can't get away from. And now instead of having a couple of core systems I've got three and four and and I end up with the same problem so doing it and doing it with an eye to where you're going in the future I think super important like if you're building that to be reusable architecture and to be abstracted from the underlying then underneath it you can put a modern architecture from the bottom up as well so it's this double pronged approach customer uh, customer down but also infrastructure up but I come back to Sarah's point that 
Big Bang migrations very rarely work. And I suspect where they have, like the nationwide one, I, I don't know for a fact, but I would put £100 right here, right now, on a podcast recorded that they didn't do all in one. I bet they did it bit by bit by bit by bit. That's just de-risking it. That's just That's sensible. Just sensible. <laughs> like, why do people try and do... And then again, it's like you've got all these esoteric systems. Like, banks have actual thousands of systems. To hope that you will get a new system to plumb into all of those thousands of systems and they will work in one go... I mean, it's just unlikely you're better off starting again. It's like getting a new phone and expecting every single app that you've transferred over to work instantly. It just doesn't happen. No, although that is a weird example because I am a big fan of Google and that did happen with my last phone. We won't go into the fact that Google Pay is broken and is no longer being accepted by merchants in the UK today. I got this message earlier. Never mind. Um, Who wants to have a laugh at a big bank? I mean, I'm always down for that. <laughs> we have a comic series built around that. So um, don't look, don't look nervous, yeah, this, Matt. This, this, this will be fun. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not Barclays, I promise. Um, so this is from CNN. Goldman Sachs is loosening its dress code. So the investment bank told employees on Tuesday that they could start dressing down for the office. Apparently, it's a notable shift for the pedigreed Wall Street firm, which has historically favoured shirts and suits. Oh, collared shirts and suits, so not just shirts. Um, the new policy comes as Goldman Sachs and other Wall Street giants compete with Silicon Valley for top young talent. Um, and then it says tech companies alone for their laid back work environments and competitive pay. I'm really upset with CNN that they're still saying things like that. Um, the funniest thing about this to me is that on the same day they did that, Goldman Sachs slapped a sell on Burberry, like <laughs> which they've been ignoring for months. And I was like, I have so many thoughts about whether that's linked or not. Um, are we are we bored of this now? Do we not expect to be able to wear jeans? I don't so, know, so, Matt Barclays. I know you work in sort of the uh, not necessarily the, the the main core of it, but like you're sitting there in front of me in black jeans and a t shirt. So yeah. So my my kind of view is like just focus on what's important. As long as long as people are comfortable and as long as people are doing the right job and as long as people are executing, who, who cares? Like just just do do create the environment that makes people feel comfortable. If people want to wear suits, let them wear suits. So it's interesting, Goldman, of course. Uh, famous for Marcus, you may have heard of that. Yeah, I, I may mean, have mentioned it once or twice. Yeah. I think possibly. Well, and so I think this is uh, this is one of those things that's like totally not important, but also like the optics of it are really interesting. Not because of um, what it means for the people who work at Goldman and what they wear, but for what it means for the culture of the industry. That it's it's one of those subtle things that's a recognition that the culture has to shift. That. I remember the first day I worked for a, a big UK bank and I walked in and I had the goal to wear shoes that were brown. My goodness, you wouldn't believe the end of comments that I got, the actual stick I got. And like within a year, I was wearing T-shirts and like I'd established credibility by that point from actually doing work. I mean, I know that's a crazy idea, but what you wear doesn't make you good at what you do. And I think as much as anything, that's part of why on the podcast we say shit. On the podcast, we, and we try and be genuine and authentic. It doesn't mean we're not credible because we wear a T-shirt sometimes. And I, and I point this out and I have a little rant about it just because I did actually meet with a large bank in the past couple of months whereby um, some feedback got back to us afterwards. Yeah, those guys were great, but I wish they'd dress better. And it's like, ah, that's how I know that's not somebody I want to work with. I just disliked your T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm 
mean, there are some t-shirts, Simon, you have that really, they seem better days. I'll speak to your fiance about that. Yeah. Um, but the... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I know Hayley and I know she's listening. Yeah, but also, um, like, that all the new FinTech Insider t-shirts. Ouch! I, mean, I feel those, at this point. Those, those, those are not the t-shirts I object to. Uh, okay. um, I really want to pick up on Matt's point about your employees feeling comfortable. I yeah. think that, to me, is the most important point. Like, there are, and I don't know, I don't want to be like that as a woman, but there are a lot of women's business dress is incredibly uncomfortable, particularly looking at high heels and, and things like that. Um, and I think like if I'm worried about, I have this thing about when I go on stage, if I'm presenting, it kind of, you want to, you want to stand up on stage and you want to feel like the most comfortable that you can be. And if you're running up and down on off stage, you don't want to be wearing high heels, but there is still an expectation particularly investment banks, that women will wear high heels to and from, well, not to and from work, sorry. They wear trainers to work, put the high heels on when they get them taken off. That's, how is that relevant or impactful to your job? In fact, to me, it's detrimental to your productivity. And I imagine there are many men who feel the same about suits or ties or collared shirts. They, they're kind of restrictive and you you don't kind of don't feel like you're... And you can, when you don't feel like you when you're yeah. wearing things. And, I, you know, I do the same before some like conferences where I'm speaking. And I will change from, like, being a bit smart to being comfortable to change. Going, and, and then I get to the end and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to wear what I'm comfortable in because then I will do the better job. Yeah, exactly. And, but, you know, you do feel that pressure of doing something that's quite not quite you and then I don't think you perform as well so because I think it can go the other way in Silicon Valley it's now become known that the, like the uniform is the hoodie and like the more obscure the hoodie the cooler you are and the more of the in crowd you are uh, but actually like if that's authentic fine but it's when it starts coming across like if authentically you love a good like I make fun of uh, Jeff who runs our consulting practice I call him hashtag middle class Jeff he's not um, middle class he's way above middle class if you look at the price of some of those shoes he, he, lo- he loves the gelée he likes a fancy sock but that's him like he's legit authentically he's that person and so like i'm i'm making fun of him and i'm hazing him but i'm doing it out of love because i love the guy because it's who he really is and like you can wear fancy stuff and you can wear it it's just who you are and i think that's the key i think we're all violently agreeing here as well and and the other stat that i saw from bbc the other day um 75 of goldman sachs employees are millennials or gen z so they're, they're just adapting to their workforce. They're, yeah. they're allowing people to be authentic and I feel comfortable. I they've lost the fight. I remember at school, we had this stupid rule where you could wear your blazer or your jumper, but you couldn't wear your jumper and your blazer at the same time. I have no idea why, but it was a very old school building and freezing cold, so you wanted as many layers as possible. And it got to the point where they just couldn't control like that many children who were all doing the same thing. And I wonder if Goldman Sachs have got to the point where they're fed up of telling people off for wearing brown shoes or tucking to tell, tuck their shirts in. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, okay, never mind. We'll just let them be who they're born to be. My favourite thing I've ever seen in fintech, and this is etched in my mind, was one of the Cybos conferences watching Liz Lumley walk down with big fluffy shoes on because they were the most comfortable things because you're walking around all day and she's just like, no, I'm wearing comfortable shoes. Loved it. It was there very is, her. Yeah, whether you're a man or a woman, there is nothing wrong with comfortable shoes. And on that note, I'm going to wrap up the show. So thank you so much to all our guests. Um, where can people find out more about you, Ali? Uh, I am at Ali Patterson on Twitter and I'm going to be wandering around at Money 2020 Asia in next week. Exciting. You do yeah. get around. Yeah, yeah. I'm bringing the toddler <laughs> with me this time as well. So he's, he's got a pass to the event and everything. Exciting. Wow. Um, Mel? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at melpalmer28 or you can head over to exoinvesting.com. Or in the 11FS offices, apparently. Yes, every week I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, how about you? 
Uh, I think people would be bored if they tried to find me. So uh, if you haven't heard of Barclays eLabs, go have a look. That's one of the fun things we're doing now. Perfect. Uh, Simon, how about you? At SYTaylor at Twitter or email me simon fscom if you want to make fun of my T-shirt choices. <laughs> and as for me, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, what do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love the show, please be sure to leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.